Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mental Illness. I am not Derek Mohan, I am Austin Ricketts, and I'm filling in for Derek, who's uh, out on assignment this week. Uh, but Carrie is still here. Hey, Carrie, how's it going? Hi, Austin. How are you? Doing pretty good. Uh, how are things at the hospital? Things are fantastic. We found out that the hospital won a very prestigious award last week. Um, wow. Our leadership goes to a conference. Thank you. We're very excited. Our corporate agency, Universal Health Services, Inc., they have about 484 hospitals between the United States and the UK, of which like 384 are behavioral health. And so you submit an application and a video. So we did that. And so we did win as, and got the honorary trophy that Fuller Hospital is the Behavioral Health Service Excellence winner for 2018 out of 384 hospitals. Wow. So awesome. That was pretty, yeah, congrats. Pretty amazing. I know you were working pretty hard on that. <laughs> pretty project, diligently. So. Yes. Oh, yeah. um, but honestly, our hospital team is amazing. We did a lot of really impressive work last year. A lot of it showed in our data, our outcomes and safety and patient satisfaction, employee satisfaction. I mean, this is real data. And so I just took all the hard work that our team in our hospital was doing and I just put it in a in a nice little five minute video. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it's a good video. Yeah, you showed me uh, when you were done with it. So thank you. <laughs> and uh, we have our guests here, Michael Breyer from Recovery Connection. Uh, you have offices in Providence, and there's one here in Attleboro. And our topic for today is medication-assisted treatment. Or MAT, as okay. some people may know it. No? Yes. Yes? Okay, yes. I was going to say, I most commonly know it as MAT. I would say most people think of it as suboxone therapy. Okay. Why? Because they don't know what MAT stands for. I, Everybody I, in the behavioral health and medical field, they know what it is, but... The common person out there, if you say suboxone therapy, they're like, oh, I know exactly what that is. That was me a couple of days ago before I looked into this. I had no idea <laughs> what MAT was. So. Michael, just I think for our, our listeners, we'd like a little maybe a little brief background on what got you to this point in your life and working in suboxone therapy. I don't know. I made a wrong turn somewhere. I just don't remember where the wrong turn was, so I can't recreate it. But I can tell you that about uh, exactly three years ago, right about now, I was doing marketing because that's kind of my, my expertise was marketing. And a friend of mine came by and said to me, hey, listen, I need some help. I'm looking to market my toxicology services to Suboxone doctors in Florida, to which I responded, what the heck is Suboxone? I've never heard of it in my life. And they, she says to me, oh, that's a treatment for people who, you know, are drug addicts. And I'm like, I remember doing drugs years and years and years ago. What kind of drugs does that entail? And they, she said, heroin. I said, oh, okay. I felt so naive because honestly, back in my day, if you smoke pot, did maybe a line of cocaine, and maybe you drop some acid, you were a real drug addict. And nowadays... That would be almost like a child's play with the kind of drugs that are going around. So I said, okay, let me check into this. And I started doing the most important research that a person can do nowadays for any new topic, Google. <laughs> <laughs> so I got on Google and I Googled, what is Suboxone? And I spent probably a month of just Googling and Googling and Googling. 
And I uncovered that I really had no interest in helping my friend to sell what in essence is piss services to doctors. I had no interest in it. It didn't entice me. But I looked into this and I said to myself, there's really that many drug addicts out there? There's that many people who are shooting up heroin that are addicted to, you know, Percocets and, and, and Vicodin and everything else? I, I, I didn't realize. I was just so naive to what was really going on in the world today. And I said, oh, that's a shame. I said, I wonder how many suboxone places there are around Rhode Island in Massachusetts. And so I did a little Google there, and you can find lots of names. So I started calling up doctor's offices to ask them what they're up to. And inevitably, what I found out is that while there's quite a few doctors who actually are permitted to prescribe Suboxone, the truth of the matter is probably more than 90% of them never prescribe any of the medication. So I said to myself, well, isn't this like a perfect business model, you have a giant, giant need out there, and there's so much demand, and yet there's nobody out there supplying this demand. I said, well, it can't be that hard. I, I said, why don't I open up a doctor's office and find myself some doctors, and we'll help all these people out there. Wouldn't that be nice? So in essence, that sounds like a great idea, but then... Inevitably, the trouble is you have to go find doctors who are willing to actually prescribe this kind of medication and deal with, I'm going to use quotations in the air, although you can't see them on the radio here, which is the demographic of the typical person who most people consider to be a drug addict and to have an addiction problem. It took me quite a while before I could find a doctor that I could start off with. Really, the rest is history. We opened our first office in August of 2016 in Providence, just practicing one day a week. Quickly filled that up, added a second day, added a third day. We're right now, we presently run in Providence Monday through Saturday, and we have double shifts on two of those days. So we run till 7 o'clock at night. And about a year ago, we opened up a location originally down on County Street, which many people might have gone by it's the sign next to uh, Weatherlane's uh, restaurant, which we've moved since then. And right now we're at uh, 7 North Main Street here in Attleboro. And if you don't know where that is, but you've ever been to downtown Attleboro, think of the guy who dances around downtown dressed in the tooth outfit. And if you find that guy with the tooth, then you were right at our building because we're right in the same building up on the second floor. So ironically enough, I, I'm familiar with your first location. That's actually how you and I connected. When I came on board almost three years ago to Fuller and we were getting ready for the first annual behavioral health and wellness fair and I'm trying to go out into our community and, and find individuals who have something to do with mental health and wellness and here's a sign that says Recovery Connections. And so called the number. And since then, it's been, I think, a really, for me at least, a very educational relationship and eye-opening to what it is that you do, who you treat. I mean, I already was familiar from working at Fuller and some other, some other areas of human service, but it gave me a, a definitely a different perspective of what medication-assisted treatment is. And so I have the, I'm lucky enough to be able to um, have run into you in several 
different types of community meetings and outlets, but also just to have conversations with you about the population that we work with, access to treatment, trying to find doctors that prescribe. I think that was one of our first conversations is here you have these people that really need help who have addiction and we have an opioid crisis, an epidemic, and here is this medication, which we're going to get into, that kind of helps to alleviate and transition them from being on heroin or Percocets to a, a, a better path to recovery is kind of the way I look at it. But why don't you tell us a little bit about exactly what Suboxone is? Well, why don't I first explain medication-assisted treatment? Perfect. So, so medication-assisted treatment is that you not only treat a patient with a medication, but you also intersperse that medication management with behavioral health assistance. The truth of the matter is people who have addiction issues, it's not just a physical nature of their cravings. Their cravings are actually psychological in nature. And if you don't treat both the medication that helps them reduce their cravings that they have and also help to help them to deal with their stresses, alleviate their anxieties, to you know, really get to the root of the causes that started them on the path to addiction, you're never going to be able to solve this epidemic. It's not a one-size-fits-all for everybody out there. Medication is not going to do it by itself, and if you don't deal with the human brain at the same time as you deal with the human body, we're still going to continue to have this opioid crisis out there. So the common term that most people use is Suboxone. Now, Suboxone is actually a brand name. It's almost like saying Kleenex in the uh, opioid addiction world. Indivisor, which created Suboxone back in 2003, I believe was the year, um, they really had a uh, monopoly on the market for this kind of treatment. And Suboxone is actually made up of two key ingredients. The first one is buprenorphine. And buprenorphine is the medications that's actually used to fight your cravings. And they mix it with naloxone. And naloxone, for all of those out there who's not familiar with it, it's the same thing as Narcan. The naloxone goes into your blood system to help in case, God forbid, you try to take the Suboxone and also start relapsing at the same time to help prevent you from overdosing. So that is the common term that people use out there. Just as a little antidote, Suboxone actually just lost their patent rights, and there's no more Suboxone actually at CVS or Walgreens or whatever your pharmacy's at, but everybody's so used to calling it at this point. It, it would be like Kleenex leaving the market would you actually say, can you give me a tissue? No, most of the time you'll say, give me a Kleenex. So it's the same idea. So the, the product is still available. It's just the, the name Suboxone. The, the, it was Invisa? Indivisor. Indivisor. So now it's really become a generic buprenorphine naloxone films and there's buprenorphine naloxone tablets out there. And that's what most people have, either tablets or film. And there's a couple of offshoots of that too, but... I don't think we need to get into too much of the minutia of that. So is this something that you'd only be using for people who are addicted to heroin or opioids? Are there other things? No. The specific purpose of the medication is for fighting people who have an opioid addiction. 
it does have some extra benefits, such as relief of pain in some cases from people. But if, if you came to our offices and said, listen, I have uh, severe lower back pain forever and ever, ever, I want to go on to Suboxone, we'll probably say no, because that's not what it was, you know, developed for. And it's really not going to alleviate enough of your pain that it's going to actually keep you happy. Can you talk a little bit about how you determine whether someone is at a point where they're addicted versus just maybe having a habit and they need help? Like, what is that? How do you tell the difference? I would say, think of this as any other type of addiction. Let's talk about alcoholics, since that's probably the number one addiction that's actually out there right now. I mean, you could talk to your friend and he could say, listen, I just like to drink but I don't have a problem. And the truth of the matter is, until the patient really is willing to admit that they have a problem, then we don't have anything to talk about. Because our first goal is to actually get them to pick up the phone and call us to make an appointment. That's our first goal. Our second goal is to try to get them to actually show up for their appointment. Our third goal is to actually get them to actually take the medication and try it for some time. And then lastly, it's to continue to come back to get both the medication and the behavioral health treatment that they need to continue fighting this addiction. That's a long path right there. It might sound simple, but the truth of the matter is that of the people who call and make an appointment, at least a third to one half of them never show up. Uh, then even if they do show up one time, you probably have another third that never show up a second time. And then out of that, you probably have another 25% who don't last longer than six months. So it's really for them, uh, unfortunately, sometimes they almost have to hit the, the bottom. You know, when is it that they, they feel that they really need it? then we can help. But to force somebody to try to deal with what I might perceive as a problem, it's not going to be successful. And we're not, we're not here to, to force it down somebody's throat. Working at Fuller, I've definitely encountered um, many individuals who have addiction or co-occurring disorders, mental health needs, and um, a substance abuse disorder. But not every heroin addict or somebody who's addicted to pills, Percocets, whatever the case is, not everyone that I encounter is using Suboxone, but they're in recovery. So I guess I'm trying to kind of understand what are the benefits of utilizing uh, medication-assisted treatment in your recovery versus a detox and recovery 12-step program, as an example. So that's, that's a valid question. In fact, I, I love to follow, there's a group on Facebook that's called the Buprenorphin naloxone taper group, which is we're anti-suboxone. You know, we basically think that you should, you know, go to detox and just live your life and you don't need to have what is in essence another opioid. Because suboxone is an opioid, just like Percocets, just like Vicodins, just like heroin. It's in the same classification. It's just not in the bad side of, you know, an opioid, it's actually on the good side. It's, it's not going to have any long-term negative effects on your body and your mind. So that being said, there's so many people who want to just get off of it. But as I try to tell people who, you know, a lot of them come into the office and they'll say, okay, I've been on this medication now for a month or whatever short 
period of time. And I'll always say to them, and you think you're going to get off of it? And they inevitably say, sure. I say, go for it if you really think that's going to happen. But I'm going to ask you a serious question. What are you going to do when you have to deal with the next stress? What happens, something happens in your family? What happens if you lose your job? What happens if all of a sudden you can't pay the bills and your wife is screaming at you and the kids are, you know, running around like terrors? How are you going to relieve your anxiety, relieve your stress in life? What are you going to search out? Are you going to do meditation? Are you going to some type of yoga? Are you going to be able to just calmly take a deep breath and say, okay, this too shall pass and I'll be fine? Or are you going to go back to what you were doing for probably for 10, 20, 30, 40 years on some people and start either drinking too much and shooting up heroin again or taking pills, whatever it is. What is it that's going to help you get through the next crisis that you're going to deal with? <laughs> Inevitably, they look at you and they say, okay, well, yeah, maybe I don't have all the answers to all the problems. And I'll say, okay, there's nothing wrong with just taking a little bit of Suboxone just as a crutch. We're not looking to make you take lots of it, just if it does a little bit for you. So what this really does, this buprenorphine, it really attaches to your frontal cortex and relieves you of the cravings for opioids. And it doesn't even require that much medication to be able to do that to give you a period of time, whatever that might be, three hours, it might be eight hours, it depends on each individual in their makeup. But it will give them some relief that they're, no, they're not having those urges to do the wrong thing. A lot of people appreciate that advice, not all of them, and they're going to wind up doing what they're going to do. So historically, to say that we, we're a little different than a lot of other clinics out there. So a lot of other clinics have a policy of one strike and you're out. You miss an appointment, you're out. You're late for an appointment, you're out. You have a dirty urine, you're out. I don't believe in that. That's not my philosophy, and that wasn't the reason when I started this. Because I said to myself, if I'm going to go down this path and try to help people, then you really need to be there to help people. Because people, you know, they need somebody to reach out for. They need to know that there's actually somebody who cares. And I love to, t my doctors, when I start a new doctor, they always say, so what's our policy for kicking a patient out? And I say, the truth, or do you want to know what I tell the patients because they're not the same thing. I'll tell the patients that, you know, they can't be late, they can't miss an appointment, they can't have a dirty urine. But that's just what I tell them. The truth of the matter is I will give them as many chances as I really need to as long as I see that they're actually trying to make some progress to getting themselves better. And what is that? That's just the effort to show up, to come to your appointment, to meet with your doctor, to meet with your counselor, to try to get some to get better it's not it's not a panacea that all of a sudden you do it a couple times and you're going to be you know you're going to be healed for the rest of your life this is just a long term process unfortunately and as long as they're willing to keep trying to go down that road with us I'm willing to keep trying to reach out to them to help them yeah it does seem like that one strike and you're out policy doesn't seem very, uh, I guess, empathetic given, you know, 
the type of demographic that you're dealing with people that you know w- will have trouble you know showing up on time or just missing appointments and just they're just gonna constantly have those roadblocks you know well, and, and you know the funny thing is so many places and a, a lot of the institutions that we're all familiar with but I won't pick them out by name have that policy and I say you know it's what is it doing for our our healthcare system anyways because if I send them out there and I'm not trying to treat them, they're going to OD. So they OD, and what's going to happen? The fire department's going to have to show up. The police department's going to show up. They're going to be in our hospitals for a few days. People want to complain about the skyrocketing cost of you know health care. There you go right there. Whereas you know we get paid pennies on the dollar compared to them overdosing on the streets. I would rather, you know, just keep paying us a a few bucks so we can actually pay our bills and we can keep them, try to keep them out of trouble. Whereas if we let them go, there's no, there's no fallback for them. There's no, there's no cushion that they can fall on and and know that they're going to be safe or or a place to call that they know that if they have a problem that they, somebody's going to be there to help them deal with it. Yeah, that policy does seem to be a little disjointed with what the recovery model and those who have an addiction, what they um, often see and in, in, in cyclically in their background and the nature of addiction. It is cyclical. It's preventative. It's an everyday. It's a one day at a time. You're trying to get through it. And there'll be times where you're going to potentially relapse or you're going to try different things and it's not going to be successful. I remember being on the radio like one of my first times on Dominic's show and somebody had called in. They were talking about Narcan and they said, why should we be bringing back these people? Why are we trying to save them, let them, essentially let them die? And I could see from an outside perspective where that thought would come from. But the question is, if that were your brother, your sister, your spouse, your loved one sitting in, in that position, would you just want them to, to, to just have us let them die? So it's, it's that whole idea that we're human beings and there's a potential for us to falter. It's the, it's the resilience. It's the getting back up. It's the trying again, um, I think, is what I'm hearing from you, that you recognize that there's a need and there's a chronic pattern with this population. But you probably have also seen that sometimes it takes quite a few stumbles before they stand. Well, that's absolutely true. I I usually tell them it's three strikes and they're out, but the truth is three strikes is not enough strikes. I mean, sometimes uh, I can think of a handful of patients that have probably had 10 or more strikes and we still keep them around in our facilities. I I mean, the truth of the matter is there's not a lot of other places. I, I always say this to people. I say, you know, if I was running a, I don't know, any other kind of business, a, a convenience store, a, a radio station or whatever it is, I could say, oh, here's my competition out there because there's lots of other places where if I don't want to buy at 7-Eleven, I can buy at the convenience store across the street from 7-Eleven. There's plenty of competition out there. But the truth of the matter is there's not that many programs out there that are solely dedicated for people who have an opioid addiction. I mean, that's all we do. We don't prescribe any other medications. We don't do anything else. That's all we do. And if we let them go, they can get on the phone and start calling. But good luck to them because I'm not sure where they're going to go other than probably winding up going to a detox center. That might be the only place that's open. But most doctor's offices 
are not going to normally accept them as a patient. So, Michael, besides Suboxone, and again, that is a brand name, what are some of the other examples of medication-assisted treatment? It is, it's, it's a category. It's not just So a, there's not really a lot out there. There is Suboxone, which comes both in a film model and a tablet model, which is predicated mostly on your insurance company that determines which one you get. There is a new medication that's out there, which is called Sublocade, which is still fairly new. It's been about, I think it's one year right now. We're in April. So yeah, it came out last year at this time, which is a a shot that you get in your stomach once a month with Suboxone in it that actually gives you your medication so you don't don't actually have to take it each day. It will automatically slow release through your body for the next month before you need to come back in to get your next, next shot. Other than that, there's Vivitrol, but Vivitrol is really used mostly for alcohol problems than it is for opioid addiction. And that's about it. Well, I'm going to mention the M word because I... and I Oh, I, I don't look, use the M word because... What is it, the M word? The, the M word. <laughs> Only because the topic is... Medi- I, I, I think we're in like one of those late night TVs. What's the M word? Um, only because... I assume that methadone, that's the M word, is under the umbrella of medication-assisted treatment. Now, I know that your centers do not, you personally, I'm sure you've done your research, um, do not promote or, or offer that. But for our listeners out there and who are just kind of curious about this topic in general, can you give a brief description of what, of what that is? Methadone is an opioid. It's a much stronger opioid than Suboxone. There's a lot more negative uh, physical side effects from taking methadone than there is from Suboxone. I, I, maybe, maybe I'm prejudiced because I'm on the Suboxone side, so the M guys are, they're the bad guys, we're the good guys. But if typically, if you were to look at the people who take that, it's almost like getting a heroin you know, buzz each day when you go into a methadone clinic. I mean, the amount of medication that they give him for some people is astronomical, and I question the success rate that methadone clinics have. I mean, they have a purpose, and they keep people alive, but I'm not sure that the quality of life is is exactly the same. So just as an aside, while we talk about the so-called demographic. And I think most people, when they think of uh, an addict, they think of uh, a homeless person with no money, panhandling on, you know, Route 95, trying to get a couple dollars so they can buy their next bag, you know, for the night and shooting up in some dark alley and things like that. And there are addicts that do that. But I have to say that for the most part, most of our patients actually have a job. Or they're older people on disability or on retirement who have been prescribed medications, mostly oxy, <laughs> uh, for too much oxy for too many years, and they're just having a problem, you know, because now they can't get oxy because of the new laws that have been put in place by the, by the state, and they're having withdrawal because of it. And a lot of them are people that are successful you know, both blue-collar and white-collar people that 
part of their secret of life is that they have to take Suboxone to make it through the day, but yet they can, you know, succeed in their jobs and succeed in their in their relationships with their both their spouses and their their children and and, and start to live what most people would consider a normal, you know, everyday life. And I, I think that's the part that a lot of people miss, that, you know, this is not just the, the dirty underworld uh, of the seedy crowd, you know, in the back alleys. This is also just the regular Joe. Uh, quite honestly, you could see any one of the three of us sitting in this room. We could easily become addicts. It's, it's not that difficult. Get into a motor vehicle accident, go to the wrong doctor, starts prescribing you heavy doses of painkillers. After a while, it's hard to get off of them. That's a story we hear at, um, I've heard quite a bit, is where you see folks who initially started their addiction began with an, an injury or wisdom teeth removal. And it was a it was a doctor prescribing them medication, pain medication, um, at a time when it was much less regulated, where it got to a point where they became addicted, and then all of a sudden they could no longer qualify or get their prescription. And in some cases, they're either seeking pills on the street or the cheaper version is heroin or or fentanyl or the you know this is the street drugs are cheaper than the uh, the pills themselves. I, I would probably say that's the motor vehicle accident. Turning into painkillers, turning into heroin is probably at least 50% of the, of the addicted crowd out there. It might be even a little higher than that. So I, I think that's a very, very common story. I, I can think of a, <laughs> tons of, of charts that I've read of, of patients that exactly had that profile. You know, 24, got into an MVA on my motorcycle, uh, hurt my back, and yada, yada, yada. So... That's how they wind up now 20 years later in their attics. I know one criticism that I hear or just you know, something that people say is that taking Suboxone or Methadone is trading one addiction for another. What, what would you say to that? I would tell you that uh, if you go to Narcotics Anonymous and one of my good friends is the head of Narcotics Anonymous and I have this discussion with him all the time, which is you're screwed up in your head, I'm trying to say that nicely, to which he says, but it's still an opioid, to which I say, would you rather these people have some type of treatment and fight their addiction and stay off of what is, in essence, street drugs? Or would you rather just ignore these people and not be able to give them comfort in their need, of, you know, their time of need? If you go to a lot of NA meetings, some will accept our patients in them and some will not. It's the truth. I mean, they're still looked at like they have the scarlet letter on them if they come in and they admit that they're actually taking Suboxone. Most of my patients, when they go, actually will not admit it. They'll just say we're off totally. So evidence-based, I assume, is Suboxone an evidence-based process for treating addiction? There's studies and so forth. Oh, there's tons of studies. That shows that. So what is, can you give us an idea currently in 2018-19 of the success rate? I think that's a loaded question because I think there is no such thing as a success rate for any type of addiction. And I'll go back to Alcoholics Anonymous, which has been around for, I don't know how many years, 75 years, something like that. And 
inevitably you could still find somebody who hasn't had a drop of alcohol in 50 years and they still stand up and they say, hi, my name is Michael and I'm an addict. And I think that does not change with any type of addiction. I think forever you're still an addict. If we're defining success by getting off of any type of opioid, I think it's rather low. I think if we're trying to define success based on being able to live what most of us will consider a normal, healthy lifestyle, I think that's rather much better. I mean, I think you're probably looking at more like 50% of people out there are able to do that. You're, you probably still have a, another 25% that are going to be fighting it no matter what, and they're the constant relapse in one, and you probably have another 25% that are good for a while until something happens, and then they might relapse and quickly come back to you know, our so-called normal lifestyle. And, but they'll be on perpetual watch anyways just because they still need to do heavy doses of counseling. Speaking of, that was my next question, is I would love for you to... Oh, gee, did I move that in nicely? (laughs) That was very nicely. Oh, thank you very much. So enlighten us. It's good that we see eye to eye on that particular topic, so it works out well. Mental health. Let's talk about that. So tell me about how your clinic and other clinics of your type, how do you address the mental health needs of the folks coming in? So I think... This is probably the thing that differentiates ourselves and many other clinics out there. So a lot of doctor's offices will offer the medication itself, but they don't have counseling in the same facility. So, you know, per SAMHSA guidelines is, yes, you can give out medication, but if you're not doing counseling, you're not really helping a a patient out there. Our policy is, If you're not seeing one of our counselors, then you need to document who you're seeing and who you're talking to. And if you're not seeing a counselor, we're not giving you medication because there is no such thing as getting medication and getting yourself so-called healthy without somebody helping you work out the issues that were the root cause of what caused your addiction in the first place. You said uh, SAMHSA. What's that? SAMHSA is the, would be the government guidelines for the distribution of suboxone or, so or buprenorphine naloxone, excuse me. Sounds like a very holistic approach mm-hmm. to, it, to it, addiction. And it has to be. I mean, there is no such thing. I mean, I can't just give you – it's not like, uh, oh, gee, what's the Keanu Reeves movie where they give him the pill and he goes to the other side? The Matrix? The Matrix. There you go. <laughs> so it's not like, okay, I'm going to give you this magic pill, and if you swallow it, you're going to go to the other side, and you will never have an addiction problem again in your life. And you'll be, everything in your life will be perfect. Uh, If they make that pill, I would like to have it myself personally uh, because I've never seen it before. So the truth is if we're not dealing with the mental side at at the same time as we're dealing with their other problems that they have in life, then, you know, they're never going to actually totally heal themselves. And it even goes further beyond that. So I'll just give you an example. So in Rhode Island... They have what's called these centers of excellence. And other than political nature of these centers of excellence, which unfortunately I'm not a political animal, so I don't know how to play the game, they do do a couple, or they're supposed to do a couple other things besides just the medication and the counseling, but also helping with employment, helping with 
finding a residence for these people. That's a true holistic nature of helping somebody get them set up in a perfect situation that they can go forward. Unfortunately, at this point, we're not equipped to be able to do those other pieces, but one day that would be my, that would be my panacea if we could ever be able to do that for some of these people. I'd like to kind of go back a little bit and talk about, you know, the nature of addiction. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about what you hear from people who have a physical addiction? Like, what is that like? Um, when, especially when they try to stop and just like, you know. Well, I mean, it's the, the uh, typical withdrawal symptoms that you're going to have are the, the, the night sweats or, or the, even the day sweats that they're going to have. They're going to feel, you know, clammy all over. They, they might wind up with... Uh, yeah, you know, urinary issues to just keep this podcast as clean as possible, um, and total fatigue. This is especially noticeable about people trying to get off of methadone too, because that is one place where we see it quite often that they have severe withdrawal. Because it's it's a nasty business to try to to transition off of any of these opioids, and you will physically feel it, you know for up to a week severely and if you've never seen it pull up any good movie that deals with drugs and you'll probably see some you know 10 minute shot of you know the the lead actor on the floor delusional throwing up and you know looking like he's just been run through a, a rain shower or something like that so yeah there is there's no question there is a physical nature to this along with the mental well, it kind of explains the approach as well in that the Spoxone therapy itself is trying to help alleviate the physical cravings, right? So I, I assume... Well, no, it's it's there to fight the mental cravings. The mental cravings. Because it's going to your brain to tell your brain, stop doing what you're doing. So... It would be the same thing as if you wanted to stop eating too much or having too much sex. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Um, or <laughs> drinking too much alcohol or, or some of those other addictions that we actually, you know, frown upon. You know, it is your brain that tells you that you need to do this. If you don't do it, you will suffer some physical effects from it. But it's not your physical body that actually requires it. It's your brain saying that it needs it. I'm, I'm 56. Just to we'll play this game here. I'm 56. I'm old. Back 35 years ago, I did lots of drugs, okay? But at the same time, I never had a physical need to do drugs, but I always had a mental need to do drugs. It's the thing you got to do. Once you've gotten that high, uh, you know, you want to relive that high 50 million times. People take a line of Coke or, you know, then they say, hmm, that really feels good. Uh, but it's, of course, short-lived. And then they say, hmm, I should smoke some Coke. Smoke it, and that's even a better high. And, and then you're, you know, you're getting to the point of shooting up and taking intravenous cocaine, uh, which is even better because it goes directly into your blood system. It's all your brain telling you that you need to do this. If, if all of us could just manage to manipulate our brain in different forms and fashions, oh God, our life would be so simple. But I don't think any of us have that ability to do, and that's why we're a pretty stressful nation as, as a whole, and pretty depressed as a matter of fact, because we have these kind of mental issues. 
And we don't have our little on off button, button on the side. I, I'm looking at my watch right now, and that was the first thing I thought as you were making the gesture next well, to your head. Well, if you talk to Apple Computer, I mean, they could take their Apple Watch. I bet you they could probably figure out how I to am, do it. I have no doubt. <laughs> um, but so it, ideally, the a, a client or potential patient coming to you has completed a detox program or has completed some sort of form of detox where they are alleviated from the physical symptoms and are now in the process of trying to create long-term recovery and stabilization. That would be a good percentage of them. I, I, it's almost too hard to categorize the right process. Inevitably, they would go to detox, spend you know 30 days in there, and be released to a place that's going to offer them both counseling and medication management going forward. And they'd wind up being placed in a, a sober living facility too. That would be the perfect scenario, but that's not necessarily the typical. That is one of the choices, but not all of them. Would you say it's a more successful model based on just on your observations of individuals you've worked with when they have the, the home life or whether it be sober living or the support at home, they have the, the Suboxone therapy to help manage the craving, the need for the addiction, the mental need for the addiction, and are also ideally in counseling or in, say, some sort of program that's teaching them how to do or use coping skills to deal with what caused them the that, stress to begin with. And if that's the process that they're in and it would last for a long period of time for their life, yes, that would be a very successful model. The problem is... Detox facilities only keep a patient for so long based on insurance. They're only going to be able to stay in the sober house for X number of days, depending on what their process is. And if, you know, they really haven't worked through their issues in a very quick process, they're going to probably wind up back doing what they were doing again because it's not a 30-day, 60-day, six-month cycle. We're, we're looking at probably needing couple years probably for them to really run through everything that they need to do to maybe be able to to kick their habit and even that I'm not sure that a couple years is, is sufficient for them. We see patients all the time that what we ask the question on their intake form you know have you ever been to detox before and which and how many and some of them don't even bother to fill it in they just say too many. They've been to ad care so they've done that one they've done Phoenix House they've gone they might have gone to Arbor Fuller. They might have gone to High Point. They might have gone to all, you know, all of those facilities, you know, so they played the game of every single one of them. And they have nowhere else to go because they really still have not got managed to get themselves healthy. You know, I, I look at this similarly to people who are incarcerated. So if you're an addict and you're incarcerated, one, it's worse in Massachusetts than it is in, is in Rhode Island because in Massachusetts they won't give you any medication when you're in prison, whereas at least in Rhode Island they will actually continue your, your treatment there. But the truth is patients come all the time and say, oh, I've been sober for 30 days, 60 days, six months, whatever the case is. But what happens? They go back to exactly the same setting that they were in before they were incarcerated and they're going to go right back into their same old habits. I mean, the recidivism rate in, in prison is, what, 75% or some crazy number like that? I mean, it's a high percentage. And why is that? Well, because when you come out, you don't wind up getting placed in Montana where there's nobody there to, 
you know, entice you to steal and murder and take drugs or deal drugs or whatever it might be that got you into prison in the first place, you wind up back in your same neighborhood with your same friends and they're still doing the same things and you wind up going back because you feel social pressure to do it. When it comes to suboxone therapy, length of treatment, you kind of already touched a little bit upon length of treatment and it sounds like, and I understand, every case is individualized and everybody's different. When you take somebody on, when, it, when somebody comes to you for suboxone therapy, is it anticipated or is it typical for someone to stay in this for the duration of a, of a lifetime? Or is there an ultimate goal to have them utilize suboxone therapy to get through or to at least create enough of a gap and enough tools outside of that therapy to maintain their recovery as long as possible, and then try to... Our goal is always that they inevitably would taper off taper and off. stop taking the medication. The problem is really that they have to be able to give it enough time that they're ready to do that. And I think people are anxious, and people go on Google too much sometimes, and they say, oh, I really need to be off this medication, or... Whatever it is that they might have as preconceived notions about the medication, and they try to go and battle with themselves and say that they can come off, and I'll still come back to the same thing, which is if they haven't really dealt with their behavioral health, their mental issues, they're never going to succeed. I mean, they have to really get themselves into a, a healthy place. I mean, I've had I've battled my own personal addictions in the past, and the only time I knew I was getting myself healthy was when I found a different way of dealing with my stress in life. And, you know, that happened to be to be a bicyclist. So I have another addiction problem, which is I can't stop exercising every day. As I tell my wife, I said, you choose which addiction would you rather me have? Would you like me to be an alcoholic, you know, every night? Or would you rather me just disappearing for two or three hours every day to go ride my bicycle? Which one do you want? Because uh, I'm going to need something that I can fall back upon because I'm not any stronger than anyone else is out there. And that's how I can fight my my stress. I get on my bicycle and I can deal. I come back refreshed and, you know, I have a game plan for dealing with the problems of the day. And that's what people need to do is they have to find what it is that are going to help them. It's not so easy. <laughs> a lot of people aren't going to find any type of uh, fallback position. So they're going to consistently need, you know, psychological services out there. And, and they need, you know, they need a friend, somebody to talk to, you know. And, and you know what the funny thing is, I, and when I say that, I, I think of our culture versus a lot of the European cultures. And they, they have that uh, study that they say the happiest countries out there. The United States isn't anywhere near the top of the world profile of the happiest countries. Why? Because most of us don't have really that many friends and not that many friends that we can actually count on when there's a problem out there. You know, maybe if you're lucky, you have one or two, but you'll be damn lucky. Whereas in a lot of other cultures, you know, the, the family is a lot closer or there's just a lot of more communal spirit out there. And it's not unknown to be, you know, friends with your neighbors and everybody else in the community and those kind of things. So... Uh, you really need that support group to be able to make it through. And until people find that, then we're willing to keep our doors open for them to be the support group for them as they battle this addiction. 
Yeah, I remember, uh, I don't remember the exact study, but um, basically it said that, you know, the quality of a person's well-being is based on their social connections. And how many friends they have. Right, right, exactly. Right. Well, and, and also looking at one of the most successful treatments for addiction, besides Suboxone therapy, is fellowship with 12-step programs. It really is the fellowship and the social aspect that is reported to to create that long-term success. We advocate completely for having our patients go to NA meetings every day. If that's what it, I mean, it's almost like a religious thing. You go to you can go to church or temple or wherever or your mosque or whatever you happen to pray, and have that communal, or you can go to NA and have that communal. Whatever it needs to be, so you have a, a sense of community that you have people that you can talk to and to help you get it through the, the battles of the day. But life isn't easy. Unless we give people enough uh, resources out there to to reach upon, I mean, I think the problem is a lot of people are just scared to ask for help. So I know that there is a lot of stigma regarding um, like clinics in the area. There are comments from people like, do we want more people coming in that are, you know, drug addicts and quotes and all of that? What can we do to kind of uh, as individuals or as a community to kind of lessen that stigma? Well, I think it's an educational process for people to really learn that, you know, we're not bringing in extra homeless, decrepit people into your community to go rob your, you know, house or your apartment. A lot of these people are your neighbors who live in the house next door who have a mortgage just like you more than it is everywhere else. You know, and it's funny you say that, and I'm, I'm actually a little surprised because I have found Attleboro to be more welcoming than Providence. I have found, uh, I would never have met Carrie. We have a very close relationship with Butler Hospital. I've never been to Butler Hospital. I mean, we literally talk to them every day, but I've never been there once in my life. I've talked to the uh, police department here. I mean, you have a special police department that only works with people who are fighting opioid addiction. We don't have that in Providence, or if we do, I don't know where to find it. So there's no Providence opioid addiction uh, policeman that I can say, hey, how you doing? You have a, a real community here of people who want to help to fight this battle that I find actually rather welcoming more than anything else. I'm a little surprised and taken aback that there are people out there who are are talking about the stigma because I've never run into that in any of the community meetings that I've gone to. Then again, I'm meeting with other people who are activists in the area who are trying to fight this as opposed to the regular, you know, Mary and Joe Smith who live down the street here who might have really no concept of what, you know, drug addiction is all about. But I, I think Attleboro's way ahead of a lot of other times. I find Massachusetts in general way ahead of Rhode Island. And you would think that they're right on the border, that one would learn from the other. But, uh, you know, other towns run similar types of, you know, community relationship uh, processes between organizations and private companies like ourselves and, you know, the government officials to try to fight this addiction. The other stigma we're actually fighting right now is the fake news out there. So the fake news out there is if you read the headlines, and I believe the headlines were both in the Providence paper recently and the Attleboro paper recently, which is overdose deaths are down. So my question when I was approached by that to the police department was, okay, 
opioid addiction is uh, opioid overdoses are down, but how many overdoses were there this year versus last year? And the answer is four. So we're actually not winning the battle that we think that we're winning in the headlines. And I think that's one thing that people should be aware of, that we're still having quite a few people that are burdens on our healthcare system because we're not properly treating them out there. Why do you think that is, that there's uh, fewer deaths but more? Oh, there's uh, no question. It's because there's more prevalence of Narcan out there. Yeah, no, there's the number one reason. I mean, people nowadays, when they shoot up, the two people will go together into, a, you know, into an alleyway. The one will shoot up. The other one will wait, see what happens to their friend. Once they know that the what in essence is not heroin, but usually fentanyl is actually safe to take, then they'll shoot up also because this way they have some Narcan one can give to the other. So there's no question. I mean, people are friends are saving friends all the time because of it. I think that. This was a uh, fantastic opportunity to learn more about a medication-assisted treatment, specifically suboxone therapy. I can't help as we're, as we're you know talking about this topic and listening to Michael think about uh, a very similar model or process that I'm familiar with working at Fuller and working with folks with mental illness and evidence-based practices. And I think about how what what has shown to work and what works at our hospital and in most hospitals, but I'm going to give a shout out to ours, um, is the fact that if it's not just giving the magic pill. It's not just going to counseling. Those things can be effective on their own, but it's a combination. It's that holistic approach. So I kind of had a light bulb go off in my head as I'm listening to you. I'm like, whoa, if you were to take out the word, you know, Suboxone and you put in, you know, a, a psychotropic medication that helps address, you know, depression or anxiety, along with a partial hospitalization program that's going to teach you cognitive behavioral therapy um, skills to help you cope with your with your stresses and you're seeing a counselor. It's kind of, it's very similar. And we do a lot at Fuller with folks who have a co-occurring disorder. We have two co-occurring disorder inpatient units, but we also have an outpatient partial program that focuses on co-occurring disorders. And so now you're dealing with folks that are on Suboxone and other MAT treatments, right? And so our docs and our team are trying to balance both that as well as psychotropic medications that they may require for their, for their mental health and also provide coping skills and supports. So it's it's definitely holistic, no matter how you look at it. You know, we could go down a whole nother. <laughs> we start dealing with the medications needed. I mean, most of our patients are all dual diagnosis patients anyways. But it, the problem becomes the medication that needs to fight on one side versus the medication fighting on the other side. There's a whole bunch of research out there about whether they can work together or shouldn't be working together and everything else. Personally, if they can work together, I think that's the best case, quite honestly. But that's not necessarily for everybody. And they have to figure out, sometimes you have to battle one of them before you can battle the other one because you can't battle them both at the same time. That's so. why it's so important to, if you have a psychiatric diagnosis and a substance abuse disorder, or if you are suffering from those symptoms of mental health and you have an addiction, that you're going and you're getting both of these chronic illnesses addressed and treated 
collectively, you know, not just going necessarily, I mean, there's nothing wrong with going into psychiatrists for, for your, your, um, your mental health medications and going to, um, an MAT provider for your addiction treatment, but collaboratively understanding the science behind how these mingle and how these work off of each other and what's safe and, and, and what works. Well, I mean, that's why I would give a shout out to, you know, to the hospital, you know, for a lot of these patients, they need the hospitalization. It's almost like getting the spa treatment, which is, yeah, you want to pamper all parts of your body and you need the same thing for your mind too. And you need to go to professionals that are going to be able to actually address all of those issues for you to actually give you a game plan that when you walk out the door, you're going to be able to follow that game plan and be successful in it. Absolutely. Did you mean the questions, Austin? Nope, I'm, I'm all set. So, Michael, if people wanted to find out more about Recovery Connection, where can they go? So, you can go to our website, of which we have a bunch of them. SuboxandDrAttleboro.com would be, would be one. RecoverRI.com is another one. You can just Google Recovery Connection, Providence, or Attleboro, and you'll see us because... We're pretty much the only one up on Google. Number two, you can give us a call, 877-557-3155. We have 24-hour answering service, so we try to be there for you. Just because you feel like calling at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, yes, we try to pick up the phone and and talk to you and, and try to get you in as quickly as possible to help you. And this is a voluntary service, so a referral from a doctor or a primary, is any of that required? No, and uh, most importantly, actually, for anybody who's listening to this, we accept all insurances. Don't ask us if we accept your insurance, because even if we don't accept your insurance, we're going to accept you as a patient. Uh, we'll, we'll go get the insurance coverage for us to get paid, but I would rather you first come in and get your treatment as opposed to you waiting for us to get covered by some obscure health insurance company that we've never bothered to apply for. But all the all the big boys like Mass Health and, and uh, Blue Cross and Harvard Pilgrim and Tufts, are, we cover all of those, no problem. Fantastic. Awesome. Uh, so, Carrie, do you want to talk a little bit about Fuller and how people can reach you there? Of course. Uh, so, again, this is Carrie Ballou. I'm the community relations liaison um, at Fuller Hospital, located at 200 May Street in Attleboro, Mass. If you have any questions for me regarding Fuller services, there's a couple of ways to get a hold of myself. Um, we, you can always contact uh, Fuller directly at 833-FULLER, F-U-L-L-E-R, or I'll break it down for you, 833-338-5537. And I am extension 2354. I'm happy to answer any questions you may have about this podcast or our services. We also have a fantastic new website, um, fullerhospital.com, which actually also gives you um, all the information you need about our inpatient and outpatient services, as well as ways to make a referral. And we have a Facebook page at Fuller Hospital on Facebook, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to grab a picture of us that we can post so you can see us in person. So the other thing that we definitely offer and Fuller supports along with several agencies in the community is there is a monthly drop-in center here in the in the Attleboro area. You do not have to be from Attleboro. If you're listening to this podcast and you're in greater Attleboro or if you're in Rhode Island. We go out to the Cape. 
we go up to the Cape. Out to the Cape, yes. If you're in the Cape, um, it does not matter where you're from. We are absolutely happy to help. So our drop-in center is the last Wednesday of every month. It's called the You Are Not Alone Drop-In Center. It is uh, located at 505 North Main Street or uh, Murray Unitarian Universalist Church here in Attleboro. We are open from 5.30 to 8. We try to make our hours convenient for folks that may be working or have other commitments. And our resource center is primarily to help individuals who have questions or needs around addiction, mental health, domestic violence, get access to resources, voluntary treatment, get Narcan trained for free at a location in which we emphasize and we honor anonymity and are there to help. And I got to tell you guys, there's so many resources um, that come to our drop-in center. I mean, the tables I look at in the room around me shock me. And all these folks are, are professionals from these organizations that are here to answer your question. So, and you can find our drop-in center on Facebook if you want to type in the You Are Not Alone drop-in center. All right. And um, I'll talk a little bit about the podcast. So you can find this podcast, Exploring Mental Illness, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and TuneIn. Uh, if you like the show, please leave us a review. Um, and five stars. Five stars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Only five, five stars. stars. <laughs> it really helps to uh, help uh, get the podcast out there. And you can also find us on Facebook if you just search for Exploring Mental Illness. And you can join the discussion there. So I'm going to try to be Derek. This is some big shoes to, to fill for today's podcast. So for those out there who are finding themselves in need of support around an addiction or around mental health issues or both, they don't know where to turn. You don't know where to start. You have questions for yourself or your loved one. Just remember, you are not alone. There are several individuals and resources that are here to help you and to guide you. And we hope that you will utilize those resources. And in the meantime, take care of each other and be well. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Atterborough Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.